Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 6 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we will hear from Ian Rintel from the Refugee Action Coalition about a very unfortunate and terrible incident. Neo-Nazis attacked the family home of Paddy Gibson, Sydney anti-racist activist. And we need to speak to Ian about this very important topic because it really does leave very, very serious implications. Um, It's not... I mean, obviously the attack in itself is atrocious, but we need to speak generally about what's happening in Australia and indeed all over the world um, in terms of the rise of fascism and the way that the pandemic has has just um, amplified everything. So, yeah, Paddy Gibson was an ind- Indigenous rights supporter and socialist and, and he was attacked and we'll talk, th- talk about that very soon. After that, we will speak with Dr Maria O'Sullivan, Associate Professor, Senior Lecturer, lecturer Faculty of Law, and a, of Faculty of Law, sorry, and a member of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. We interviewed Maria some weeks ago now and we're going to be having a follow-up interview now about the Public Health and Wellbeing Pandemic Management Bill 2021, which was passed in, through Parliament. And we'll be speaking basically about the Charter of Human Rights and looking at a few things in relation to what the bill is and whether any of the recommendations have made it safer for Victorians in terms of human rights. But we'll also talk about the positives as well. And then after that, we're going to be speaking with Brett Collins. It's getting towards the end of the year. And I always like to connect with Brett um, in regards to what's happening at Justice Action. Um, He's actually um, at Justice Action, still doing projects. Wonderful man and an ex-prisoner as well. But now um, we're going to be going over to Ian for our first interview. Hello, Ian. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, Marissa. Nice to be talking to you. You too, Ian. And can you just fill us in and take us through what happened with Paddy Gibson and have a look at some of the background about what's happened there? Yeah, well, I'm I'm sure uh, some of your listeners will be familiar with uh, Paddy. Paddy's a very well-known um, an indigenous uh, supporter. He's been very prominent in you know, most of the you know the rallies that have been organised, particularly around you know deaths in custody and you know Black Lives Matter. 
things in uh, you know, in in Sydney. Um, he's also an NTU activist. He's a you know lecturer at, at UTS. Uh, but on uh, Friday night, um, that's so sorry, on Saturday night, um, yes, three uh, three Nazis showed up at his place. Um, you know, banged on the door, kind of calling out his name. Um, he went to yeah you know, he went to the door, but actually could, didn't open it. They could see you know through the you know the peephole you know that it was. Uh, Three, uh, you know, skinheads with um, Eureka flag T-shirts. So it was pretty, pretty clear that, uh, you know, they weren't there on any friendly business. And then they actually started calling out, you know, is Paddy there? We've got to talk to Paddy. You know, are you Paddy Gibson? Um, and um, anyway, on that basis, he, you know, he didn't, he didn't open the door. Obviously, uh, he went went back further into the house just to kind of secure his. Yeah, you know, his safety. But uh, almost immediately, then they just started uh, kicking at the kicking at the door, uh, attacking the screen the screen on the door. But then, you know, pulled a screen off the window that was to the just to the side of the door, and then you know, smashed it there through the you know the window it, window itself. Um, by that stage, uh, you know, it's a bit hard to say uh, you know like exactly when they departed. But not long after that, they did start to leave. But it seemed like the noise had attracted a bit of attention. to pretty quick. People who uh, his neighbours, you know, were you know, coming out of their out of their houses, and so um, you know they were able to uh, you know call to call to make sure that Paddy was okay, and uh, able to let him know that uh, you know the Nazis had left and they'd gone off you know down the street, and um, you know it was uh, yeah safe to open the house that people were there to you know support him. I've interviewed Paddy before, um, quite extensively actually, and quite a, a few people um, that are connected with him. He's actually been instrumental in recommending a lot of Aboriginal elders for me to interview. Very, very helpful. Yeah, yes. He's got a lot of, a lot of connections in the, uh, in the Indigenous uh, indigenous communities, lived uh, you know, a lot of different places in the Northern Territory for quite a while. So there's lots of connections and all the work he does around the you know, deaths in custody and you know, lots of other issues. So he's yeah, very very well attached in that in that respect, and we were very happy to have one of the um, indigenous activists in uh, you know in Sydney, uh, Lizzie Jarrett, like put her name to the press release that we put out, you know, saying that the indigenous community stood with Paddy. Ian, why is it that there's such a significant escalation from the far right and fascism? Well, I, <clears throat> I mean, I think you have to look at what's, you know, what's generally happening. I mean, it's pretty clear in Victoria that the, you know, the far right are trying to get an audience for themselves out of the, the misery that's been caused by, you know, the lockdown and the, you know, the suffering that's gone gone with that, the obvious increases in inequality, the police harassment, the police repression, uh, people have lost their jobs. You know, look, in, that, in one respect, it's, it's classic in that you know, capitalism creates uh, you know the fertile ground in which the you know the far right you know grows and I um, mean obviously it's associated with the policies that we're getting you know from the mainstream uh, politicians you know the more you know right wing politics the more racism we get from the mainstream politicians and the you know the more fertile the ground that the Nazis grow in and um, and that's what uh, that's what I think uh, over the whether it's you know domestically or you know or internationally you know we've seen that those those circumstances, the far right has been trying to get, 
you know, an increasing uh, an increasing hearing, you know, for its uh, you know for its racism. It's got nothing. It's not interested in you know actually changing the conditions for ordinary people. It's only ever interested in you know, sort of benefiting itself and trying to sow the you know seeds of uh, division and, and racism. And that's what we've you know that's what we've got. I'm afraid um, it's not uh, particularly you know it's not particularly obvious in you know, in Sydney um, except for the. Um, yeah, you know, some of the you know, some of the rallies in terms of there being a you know a far right presence. Um, there's not uh, you know Paddy's had death threats before. You know we're associated with you know building you know anti-racism rallies or Indigenous uh, rallies, but there's nothing in particular that seems to have um, you know precipitated this other than the you know the general circumstances that uh, the misery that you know capitalism. You know, created, but um, you know these guys have, you know, obviously decided they, uh, you know, they wanted to step it, you know, step it up a notch and to uh, make a, you know, an explicit physical threat and a, an attack on his house. So you know, uh, Paddy's taken it seriously. You know, we've certainly taken it seriously, and um, you know, people in the neighbourhood have been absolutely, you know, absolutely great. Like I, I don't think these three guys are. There's a lot of eyes, uh, you know, around Paddy's house and around Paddy's suburb now that are looking for, you know, the, the the, the, the three guys that were responsible for the attack. Absolutely, and I, I believe the police were not much help. Well, it's yet to be seen. Um, you know, like we, they were a bit slow getting there. We, we thought it took them 30 minutes to show up. I mean, thankfully, you know, people in the, in the neighbourhood were there within, you know, within minutes. Um, there's a lot of CCTV footage, um, you know, that um, we're, we're going, we'll just have to wait and see over the next couple of days just how quickly the, you know, police assemble, you know, the amount of information there is. There are people who uh, gave them statements, uh, you know, on the night, people had seen them walking down the road, they've got those statements. Um, I feel quite confident that the police will know who these individuals are. Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, so we're... We're looking, we're looking forward. We're expecting a very, a very speedy, you know, police uh, police response to this. Absolutely, and the media release is 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 very good. There's quite a few quotes here, which is really good, from the Greens, um, David Shoebridge, and also uh, George Newhouse, the CEO of the National Justice Project. And I find it interesting too, um, Ian. That, you know, as it says in the media release, governments around Australia have failed to take the threat of violent, racist and militant groups seriously. And this is happening all over the world. But also, um, would you say that the pandemic has has made neo-Nazis a lot braver and a lot more courageous? Um, look, I, I think they obviously take some sustenance from the, the, the you know, the discontent, but it's you know, it was ever it was ever thus. They they grew. They do you know grow out of the misery of uh, capitalism, and the pandemic has created its increased levels of uh, inequality. It's re- increased levels of racism and discrimination. It's increased levels of you know police harassment. You only have to look at you know who's been the brunt of you know, the people who you know, the numbers of people who've been you know stopped by police, who've been fined you know by police. Um, it is. It's the indigenous people. It's marginal marginal people. Uh, the fact that the um, that the, the mandatory vaccination uh, decrees have uh, resulted in you know nurses, teachers, railway workers, construction workers, you know losing you know losing their jobs uh, you know unnecessarily and you know in 
my in my opinion. Uh, but it's precisely those circumstances where you know far right ideas can actually get a get a hearing. I think particularly when the left isn't you know, isn't responding as, as vigorously to the kinds of powers that um, Dan Andrews is talking about introducing to deal with the pandemic. Um, you know, increasing police powers doesn't actually stop. Yeah, the spread of COVID, uh, but in, when the left says nothing about people losing their jobs and nothing about police harassment, you know, as a consequence of pandemic powers, well, then it's precisely those circumstances that the far right, you know, seeks to 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 gain a hearing. Um, so it's not just a matter of actually responding to the threat of far rights, of calling out, you know, sort of, you know, Nazis in the far right when they're, you know, when they're active, um, but it's incumbent on the left to be actually to provide a response, you know, to the failure of to the failure of the government, to people who've created the discrimination and the racism and the unemployment in the first place. There has to be a left response to that if um, you're going to actually gain a hearing, if you're going to win people to the idea that we have to, you know, fight capitalism, uh, you know, not each other, that it's actually, you know, governments that are responsible for not not supporting public health, you know, if we're not implementing the, the measures that are necessary to keep people safe, we're not rolling out the vaccines, you know, sort of, you know, thoroughly enough, making them uh, making them available. You know, we the, the public health, the failures of public health, are responsible for that as, uh, you know, as the governments of the world, not uh, you know, not you know, not ordinary people. And uh, and that's uh, that's where you know, I think uh, we've we've got quite a, a you know, a big discussion to be had about how you most how you do successfully stand up to the to the far right. Indeed, and we we do have to organise and uh, unite. And it's really important to create a, a united front. There's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of disunity. And Ian, what you what you've said um, about vaccinations and about everything is is fair enough. Because although the vaccine is important, there has to be more positive messaging. There needs to be more access, um, especially to under resourced, um, you know, Aboriginal communities and other com- refugees as well. Yeah, that's right. There's supposed to be more support in general. You know, when when people can't get you know pandemic leave, um, but they know if they get the you know, vaccine, they may be forced to take a day or two off work because they get sick. I mean, there's a reason that you know some people have been you know vaccine hesitant. They're not they're not Nazis. They're not they're not fascists. They're people who are victims of discrimination and capitalism. Uh, Sherberg in Queensland, one of the Big Aboriginal communities there is only 30% vaccinated. Now, the people of Sherbrooke are not are not fascists. Um, you know, they're not you know determined anti you know anti vaxxers uh, They're they're the victims for you know a couple of hundred years actually of discrimination and even you know contemporary racism. And when you haven't got Aboriginal you know medical teams you know that are funded to go into the communities, the communities have got confidence uh, confidence in you know got assurance in. Then that's that's where you know vaccine hesitancy. You know, actually, you know, actually comes from, and the same kind of thing. The idea that it's okay, you know, for someone who's vaccine hesitant to be actually sacked, you know, from their job in a railway worker or as a nurse or a teacher or anything else, you know, that's something which I think the left and the unions have to, you know, have to stand up to. You know, that, um, you know, it's not, uh, you know, a small proportion in in Australia where you've got such very, very high levels of vaccination. The small proportion of people who are unvaccinated are not are not a public health health risk, and I'm quite sure. You know, if that was the kind of attitude that came, people could be encouraged, people could be, you know, educated, uh, the support that people need could be provided for, then, you know, that's the way, you know, public health, a public health, you know, that's, a, that's the kind of public health response that we, you know, that we need. Um, but uh, so when, you, when you're not getting that, when you when increasingly 
governments are relying on you know, repression to try and force up vaccination rates because of the, you know, their own failures at the state and you know, government level. Well, it's precisely in those circumstances that the far right you know, can, uh, can get a hearing. So, you know, to take the, advantage. Yeah. yeah, that's right, to take advantage and try to pull people as if they've got, they've got an answer. We know they haven't got an answer. It's quite clear. I mean, why, why, were, why are they attacking an anti-racist? You know, they're, exactly. not, they're not doing anything about public health. They've actually gone to attack you know, Paddy's health. It, 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 it reveals everything that's, that's rotten about the far right and about Nazis and why, they, why there does have to be an absolute united response to say that they're not welcome in Sydney, they're not welcome in, in Melbourne, they're not, they're not welcome anywhere. Ian, thank you so much for your time. You've given a very, very comprehensive overview. Thanks a lot. Okay, thanks, Marissa. Yeah, good luck. Take care. Bye now. And that was Ian Rintel from the Refugee Action Coalition um, speaking about um, fascism and anti-racist activists was attacked. Um, We're going to be speaking very shortly with Dr Maria O'Sullivan and we're going to be speaking with her about the the pandemic, the wellbeing and pandemic bill um, that just got passed. Maria O'Sullivan, the associate professor, senior lecturer of, fac- of faculty of law, and a member of the Carsten Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University, we will interview her about the public health and wellbeing pandemic management bill 2021, and we'll speak to her about the Victorian Rights Charter. Oops. The much-loved Surely Miss Koori Night Markets are back. Come and check out all the amazing goods made by First Nations artists. Plus, we'll have live entertainment, door prizes and delicious food. Wednesday, December 15, from 6pm at Arnie Elmer's Gathering Place. 546 High Street, Preston. The Koori Night Markets are proud supporters of 3CR. And in case you've just tuned in, this is 3CR Community Radio and this is the Do and Time Show. And I'd like to now, um, without any further further ado, welcome Dr. Maria O'Sullivan to the program. Hello, Maria. Welcome to the program. Oh, good afternoon, Marissa. It's great to have you. Now, we interviewed you a couple of weeks ago in regards to the, the, the bill, which I just talked about in my intro. And I wanted to invite you back. It's lovely to have you. Just to talk about the bill again and how it passed through Parliament and perhaps just to give a – I'd like to talk to you a bit more, just to give you – get a bit of background and talk about whether some of the recommendations were implemented. Sure. So the sticking point was the Legislative Council because the government doesn't have a majority there, so it was really um, about the crossbenchers, so these are independents. And it came down to a couple of those. And, of course, they did listen to bodies like the Centre for Public Integrity, the Law Council of Australia and the Bar Council. So um, some of the issues were related to the aggravated offences provision. So that's where if you knew or, or reasonably knew that you had COVID, you could be put in prison for two years if you spread COVID. So I had a, a, a major concern with how broad that provision was. The other provision which was problematic was exempting, I guess, differences in the law um, if they were discriminatory, so trying to take out the Equal Opportunity Act. Um, 
those two, which were in my mind the most serious um, problems, have been taken out of the bill. So that's great. The other thing is that the oversight mechanisms have been increased. So there's a parliamentary sort of a parliamentary committee that's going to look specifically at any pandemic orders. Great. So well, that's that's an achievement, isn't it? And what about the protections of the Charter of, of Human Rights Responsibilities Act? 2006. Do you think that Victorians are sufficiently protected under that with this bill yeah, in place? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so the, the Charter was always, I guess, in the background. So for your listeners who may not know some of the things that are listed in the Charter, we've got freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, etc. And I raised those two in particular because They've really been um, a contested issue in COVID because of the restrictions on protest. So, as I said, they've been in the background, but because the public health orders tend to be made by the executive, they're not actually an act itself. They're empowered by an act. They haven't been put through a charter, um, a formal charter scrutiny. And so the good thing about the pandemic bill as it's been passed is that it does oblige the the state, the Premier, to say what charter implications arise from a pandemic order and that, and that has to also be tabled in Parliament and put on a website. So in future, the great thing is when a pandemic order is made, say it's a stay-at-home direction, you'll be able to look at the internet, the government internet, and see what charter rights have been um, affected and the justification for reducing those rights. Okay, so would that include, for example, um, protest? Yes, and I did actually sort of in my media work, you know, say that we should have a protest protection in the legislation itself, so in the pandemic bill. That hasn't eventuated, but what they, they have done is... In the Hansard, they promised they would put a provision of safe protest in the policy. So it's not as, I guess, as robust as putting something in an act, but the government has pledged to put in protest protections in policy. So that will give us an idea. And and they talk about safe protest. So the idea is when we're allowed to socially distance and wear masks, so in a sort of soft lockdown my hope, at least, is that the policy will say, well, protests can go ahead if those things can be done, social distancing and masks. You would have, um, you would remember from last year, Maria, about how um, Chris Breen was taken into custody and also charged with incitement to riot. And there was a car convoy um, of safe protest and that happened during the, the hard lockdown. Exactly. So that's very much the case that I've advocated um, for protection. So there could be a debate about whether in a hard lockdown, so we have a curfew and you can only go five kilometres or ten kilometres, then it's much more difficult to protest. But in the situation that Chris Breen was involved in where the requirement was about social distancing and the wearing of masks and so forth, then you could have a safe protest and that could be either by car convoy or also typically in other jurisdictions they've looked at sit-down protests. So theoretically you could all sit down uh, as long as you were socially distanced in Federation Square and have a protest that way. But it's not actually embedded in the bill, is it, that it's an essential thing? 
No, unfortunately we didn't get that. We only got a promise to put it in policy. So hopefully we can still point to that if there is a a problem, say in three months' time, if we have another protest and there's a dispute about it, we can at least say, well, there's an acknowledgement that protest should be a special sort of activity um, and if shopping is allowed, etc., then protest should be as well. Before we also look briefly at the positives of the bill, Maria, what do you feel, I mean, in in your professional opinion, does the bill still fall short of achieving its stated objectives, um, namely promoting transparency and accountability in relations to decisions made and actions taken? Um, look, it can always be, you know, improved, I guess. Um, there was a debate about a sunset clause, so whether the, the the bill should actually expire after a certain period. There is a review provision, so um, there is going to be an independent review of the bill, I think, within 18 months. Um, I think transparency... Look, uh, to be honest, I think one of the problems that started the protest is that the power was given to the Premier and... Look, I was a bit surprised when I first read it because I thought that's unusual giving a pandemic declaration power to a Premier rather than the Minister for Health. So basically the declaration itself is given to the Premier and then the Minister for Health makes the safe stay-at-home directions, etc. Um, that does actually replicate New Zealand legislation, so there's a precedent, if you like, for that. Um, and I speak to that because... I, I would probably say if that was just done alone, so giving the Premier and the Minister the power because they are politicians, that would be concerning to me. But we do have this um, inter-parliamentary committee now. We've got an independent advisory group that will be made up of medical professionals, human rights lawyers, etc. And we'll have the the tabling, so the, the fact that the Chief Health Officer advice and the Charter of Human Rights Advice has to be put to the public. So I think I'm happy with putting the power uh, or giving the power to the Premier and Minister as long as we've got those things. Now, the only sort of disadvantage, I would say, is that these are all things in the Act. So we've got these committees and advisory groups and transparency. The, the proof will be whether those things are actually implemented so we've got the, the Act um, that's been passed. I think, yeah, we, we all need to be vigilant to make sure those transparency mechanisms are actually implemented next year. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've basically talked a little bit about the positives of the bill. I mean, that, that's pretty self-explanatory. Of particular concern is um, possibly increased police powers. And can the Premier call a pandemic if there's not one? Yes, that's a great question. He can, in fact, or she in in, in future, uh, they can declare a pandemic. So say there is a pandemic in Queensland and it hasn't yet reached Victoria, the Premier will be able to uh, say that there's a pandemic declaration and that might then be used to close the borders to Queenslanders, for instance. So you're absolutely right. Um, and look, that's probably a bit broad, the power too, because uh, it said something like, if the Premier thinks it's reasonably necessary. Ideally, in in these matters, we would like a criteria to be set out in the legislation. All there is at the moment is, you know, whether he or she thinks it's reasonably necessary. Um, that's, that's often a term that's used in legislation. And here, I guess, we need to think about 
the the tension between accountability and transparency on one hand, so having all these committees and checks and balances, and on the other hand, we do also need the government to decide in an urgent situation. So I think that's a balance that needs to be struck because sometimes decisions do have to be made in 12 hours or 24 hours, and so there's, um, a, there is a tension there. Absolutely. And, you know, we were speaking before with Ian Rintel from the Refugee Action Coalition and we were speaking a lot about um, the, the not, not so much the right to protest but the fact that this bill could actually engineer increased police powers. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, and I didn't quite answer your, your, That's okay. the other part of your question with the police powers. Um, and this is why I was very against that aggravated offence um, provision. Um, look, I think police powers in terms of dealing with protest or COVID is not just a matter of what's in the bill, but police culture. Yes. So, again, I think we have to be careful. Because police have had so much to do with our everyday lives, they can stop us and say, you don't have a mask, etc., and people who've never really interacted with the police have done so, um, I would signal a concern that going forward we need to make sure that um, yeah, police are not only aware of their powers in the new Act, but that the culture of policing is constrained as well. Absolutely. Well, look, we are in the middle of a pandemic and it is really important, you know, to to be safe and, and I'm not disputing that that needs to happen, but certainly there have been a number of concerns with, you know, from, from us at the Doing Time show at 3CR. Absolutely. And I think it's it's great that the public have been heard. I do think that that's been really important. Um, and I think the, the, the pandemic bill did have quite some significant problems and I think the the new act is is much improved it's not it's not perfect and going forward I would certainly say that civil society and academics like myself will be keeping a close eye on how those provisions are implemented in practice can you go to the ombudsman to for anything or not did that get pushed through Oh, yes. And actually, Deborah Glass, who's the Victorian Ombudsman, was quite vocal. It's it's a little bit unusual for the Ombudsman to write an opinion piece or be, you know, sort of cited in the paper. And in the age, she was quite vocal. Um, she has also made a public statement that she's pleased with the, the final version of the bill. Um, yes, but in terms of mechanisms, you can always actually go to the Ombudsman. But now there is, if you like, a dedicated review mechanism that's um, put in the bill for COVID um, things. Now, um, Deborah Glass last year did an inquiry into the tower lockdowns, where those those um, houses, the, yes. the social housing was locked down for a certain period, and she found that that had breached the charter. So, um, yeah, I think her role going forward is going to be pivotal because she's had quite a bit to do with. The, the bill itself, and there's also a dedicated mention of the Ombudsman in the bill, um, and so I think that's going to strengthen her position going forward. Maria, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Are there any other final comments that you'd like to make? Uh, no, I think just going forward, it's, it's great. I think that people, if there is a silver lining to COVID, is that people have engaged with human rights 
and uh, realise that you know human rights are a precious thing, and I, I hope that does help people push for a national bill of rights, which we really do need at the federal level. Indeed, and you know we need to have a balance, don't we, with with health and and human rights. Yes, and it's, this is not a position that that anyone wanted to be in, and I certainly never thought I would be talking about curfews and stay at home directions. So it's it's very unusual time, and I think going forward we need to make sure that the restrictions don't become a normal part of life. I mean, obviously they're justified, but again, going back to police culture, that we make sure going forward that these actions that were very exceptional don't become normal in normal time. It better not. We better watch this space, Maria. Absolutely, Marissa. Thank you so much for, for coming onto the show. You're welcome, Marissa. It's always a delight to be on, on your station. Take care. Thank you very much. Thanks. Good Bye-bye. afternoon. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Dr. Maria O'Sullivan from Monash University speaking about the pandemic bill.
And you're back with the Doing Time show until five o'clock. And that was a song by No Fixed Address called We Have Survived. And we're now going to be welcoming Brett Collins from Justice Action to the program. Hi, Brett. Yes, good afternoon, Marissa. It's really great to have you. I hope you enjoyed that song. Yes, baby. That's what's good spirit. Excellent. (laughs) Now, Brett, we haven't spoken to you for a long time and I've always enjoyed having you on the show and... I've just um, informed this is from Justice Action and just wanted to find out what what sort of projects have you been doing? I mean, is there stuff, for example, to do with deaths in custody or anything? Gee, I was thinking before I came on board, I said, well, what have we been doing? We've been running flat out. We have just not been slowing down, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're just putting in that together a bit of a report for the end of the year um, so that um, for our Christmas party, end of year party, we, we get to, um, we're sort of telling people what we've been up to. And so, um, I mean, I have a chance now to sort of look, well, what did we do? <laughs> we, um, I, I suppose the most important thing, in fact, is a, is a court case happening right now um, here in New South Wales, but really has national implications, and that is around around COVID um, and the entitlement of people to be uh, safe um, if you're held in, in a cell. Uh, at the very least, um, the government can must do is to make sure that you don't uh, 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 become infected by COVID because there are people so close around you that you can't defend yourself. So a really key thing is that the is corrective services, whether it's corrective services Victoria, New South Wales, or wherever it is, they must make sure, make sure that that the health. Um, obligations they have in the general community apply also in prisons, and the and the importance of that, if they if they put two people in a cell together, they can no longer have social distancing. So it means that the obligations to allow four square meters per person does cannot apply inside a prison cell, and yet they impose that upon people. They're actually managing. It's not like same as a family. It's the, the people, um, the managers decide who goes where. And um, so prisoners put in with a stranger, and so you end up with a, um, a situation where um, if one person is infected, the other person is infected as well, and um, and that's contrary to the um, health department orders. So that's really interesting, and that's the basis of a court case um, which we have um, we had running now for um, oh, about probably I'd say two months, um, and comes to uh, up before the courts again uh, on Wednesday. We have a barrister, solicitors, a lot of people pushing hard um, to um, to. Uh, force the Commissioner for Corrective Services here in New South Wales to release prisoners according to a legislation they currently have um, there for the purpose. I and thought so, New South Wales was already releasing prisoners. Well, well you know, they, they said there's no need to. They said, oh, no need to. Oh, oh. It's, it's safe. No, nobody's infected. There's no problem. However, you know, um, in the general community, there's an acceptance that medication, sorry, that, um, that uh, infections will occur and and um, there's an acceptance that it's going to happen generally. And obviously Omicron um, adds another whole another level. So, um, you know, we had Delta, and Delta um, came in over the top of, of the original um, COVID-19, and now we have Omicron behind it, and you can guarantee the others behind that as well. So the obligation Corrective Services has to, um, to uh, ensure that um, there is um, their duty of care 
is properly applied um, is the basis of the court case. So that will be very exciting. But there are other things following behind that as well. And, um, and one of them is what they're doing is locking people in their cells. So we have a lot, number of people who are in Victoria who ring us, tell us where, about what's, what's happening. And um, so we know that um, there have been lockdowns across the, across the board in Victoria. Uh, they say, oh, to keep them safe. Huh, keep them safe? You've left in a slot for uh, um, for two weeks or three weeks at a time, opening the door, throwing some food in, and, and closing the door after you. And um, then what you have is you have a, a build-up of, of um, psychological pressure, the intensity of not even being able to see uh, um, anybody outside of that cellmate or be by yourself. Um, the obligations to, to ensure people um, have got social interactions, they do have access to services. That's a very significant issue. And so what we've said is the as part of our court action, they, mu- they must have computer access inside their cells, access to a whole range of things, including access to families through the through the um, computer tablets, so access to services, education services, legal services, all those things. So that's the basis of the court case, which is quite exciting. So where, what are the actual general aims of the court case? Well, the first thing in the court case is that is that corrective services, if it isn't able to provide a, an area which is safe according to health department orders, it has to release prisoners, and and that applies to well anyone who is actually serving less than twelve months or in the last twelve months of their sentence. The legislation is there in place already to release prisoners, and there was also there was a, a case there in Victoria, the Rousen case, which is very significant actually, and um, uh, the, um, he he actually took the case himself to court and then got support from Fitzroy Legal Services and a whole range of people and those same people are giving us support in this court case um, up, here in, up here in Sydney. So um, and it, it, it does apply across the board and, it, and it, it, it can be used to force prisoners to be released if the, if the government is not in a situation to, um, to allow social distancing and of course they're not. So they have to allow um, release people, and that's the basis of the of the thrust of the court case. hasn't been decided yet, and it'll be obviously there'll be it'll be um, fought tooth and nail. But the uh, we have um, very significant um, barristers, very significant um, people in behind the court case, and so we um, have high hopes um, for making a real change there. I hope so, Brett. And I'll have to interview you next year about that. And also, uh, Justice Action has done um, quite a lot of um, solidarity work about David Dungay, is that right? Absolutely. Look, um, his David Dungay's case was Dungay. a bit of a highlight, and in, in some ways, uh, like it threw up so many issues um, for um, just treatment of people generally. You know, he was a man who they designated as, as uh, mentally ill, and um, and then they killed him in the in the in the cell and gave him no opportunity to speak to other people. He had no no Aboriginal um, uh, Aboriginal uh, inmate and delegate had had come in to give him support to talk with him at all. And all they did was run in on him within 60 seconds of having given him the warning, and then they killed him. So David Ungay case threw up a lot of things, but most importantly what it threw up was also the fact that in other states and territories these same things had occurred, and there was no such thing as a national database of deaths in custody, and no one was being was being alerted um, to the to the uh, uh, coroner's recommendations in other states and territories, in Northern Territory, and also in Queensland. The same things had occurred. Recommendations had been made by the coroners, and yet it had not trickled down to New South Wales at all. Now that was um, when we identified that. We went, hey, and so we then chased that national database, and we succeeded in getting it funded by Austley. Well, sorry, by federal government through Austley. 
Austria is the major um, database for legal services, and that was a major success. But when it came to actually um, uh, running out the recommendations, making sure everything um, was uh, has been um, uh, locked down, requiring corrective services and other states and territories to respond, they haven't succeeded with doing that. We're not happy at all with the follow-through. So that's uh, there's work to be done there, and we're following um, uh, very carefully and behind behind um, the uh, um, successful. Um, funding of the national database. But there have been other things as well. We're very much involved in, in the OPCAT stuff. OPCAT, I mean, the um, uh, the OPCAT is the optional protocol for the Convention Against Torture, which um, requires um, uh, requires inspection of all places of detention. So very much engaged in that. And um, and the other thing we've been engaged in is, is working on forced medication as an issue and making sure that um, for people in prison or psych hospitals, that the forced medication be recognised as being an abuse and torture. So we're working very strongly on on um, an analysis of the rights, international rights, um, to not be forcibly medicated and to have only the um, health support that you actually want, that you control the health support. And it's not up to the corrective services to say this man over here is causing a problem, he's a management problem, can we actually uh, um, have the um, have the medication um, to render him um, submissive and sitting over in the corner of a cell. Look, it sounds like there's been quite a few projects and, you know, it is important that we all support the ongoing work of Justice Action. Are there any other final comments you wanted to make, Brett? Well, look, I think probably the most exciting thing really is is the, the work in behind a, a national organisation for people in prison. So we're in, um, back in 1999, um, we were engaged in the formation of the Australian Prisoners' Union. That was such a significant thing. It became became um, something that was acknowledged all around the world as being um, like a really useful thing for people in prison to have their own union. And um, since that time, we've been working particularly in behind the this um, Convention Against Torture because the Convention Against Torture allows and compels every state and territory, like Victoria and all the states and territories, to have some inspection regime which is real. Not to have the ombudsman coming through and just poking his head in the, wind, in the door and going, oh, it's all okay, see you later, and having a cup of tea with his mates who, who are the governor. But we're talking about receiving information from prisoners about um, Jenny over there in the corner or Barry who's been beaten up or, or, or conditions that mean people have been left in their cells for long periods. Anything over 14 days, they say, in solitary confinement is torture. Oh, wow. Just think about what that means. So solitary confinement, a whole range of things are, are, are defined as torture and breaches of OPCAT. And there's an obligation in January 2022 for every state and territory, every state and territory, to have a national, what they call a national preventative mechanism, which is actually a, a, um, an observing of the conditions inside the prisons. So what we've done, we've worked really hard in getting, um, getting a legal structure right for the Australian Prisoners' Union which will mean that uh, there'll be a whole range of people who can now feed in into um, informing the National Preventative Mechanisms about OPCAT. So it's a little work to be done, or a fair amount of work still to be done. But we have so far, we've achieved um, recognition of the entity, right, which means the Australian Prisoners Union has a standing. And then now what we're looking for is acceptance by the what they call the Fair Work Commission which is used by all other unions, and we are saying the Australian Prisoners Union should have access to the 
Fair Work Commission and be able to make complaints and then and then present its material to OPCAT, which is the which is the United Nations uh, Convention Against Torture. Now that'll be very interesting, and it'll certainly um, a, 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 a raise an opportunity for people to um, to uh, put their complaints in a formalised way and to require a response by the government. That will be interesting. So there's a lot of stuff to be done. There is a lot. Be, and what yeah, forum? Get a voice. Sorry, Brett. What forum will will that be? Will that be talked about next year? Yeah, absolutely. Will be. Well, in fact, look, there's still work being done this year, so it's not it's not finished yet. In fact, um, the Fair Work Commission should come back to us within a few days, and um, and we'll start talking about this more widely. So at the moment, we're happy to um, just have the 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 kernel of the organisation, sure. and then from there we're expanding, and so and then we'll talk about it, and we'll make sure everybody sees it. And there, of course, there'll be the newspaper coming out very shortly. Um, just ask the newspaper. Prison newspaper. Yep. Oh, yeah, that's right. A lot Fantastic. Of Okay, what's, could you just tell us the website for Justice Action, Brett? Yes, it's www.justiceaction.org.au. And anyone sending emails and sending letters or, or um, families who, who would like to make an inquiry, are very happy to, um, to field responses and, um, and we always respond to emails. Brett, thank you so much. Lovely. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the lovely for an opportunity to, to to talk with you, Marissa, and to talk with your lovely audience. That's the audience that um, that we want to talk with. That's the, they're our that's our community, and we're really pleased to to have the chance to talk with them. Thanks so much. All with lived experience. So um, yeah, we'll we'll chat again next year. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thanks Look a lot. Forward to it. Thanks a lot, okay, Brett. Thank you, Marissa. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. And that was Brett Collins from Justice Action. And he spoke about a number of really important projects happening um, in New South Wales. I'm not sure what's happening here. Yeah, so I um, wanted to thank all our guests and Brett Collins and also the rest of our guests for coming onto the show. Yeah, so we, we spoke with um, Dr. Maria O'Sullivan about the bill and we also spoke with um, at the beginning with Ian Rintel about an anti-racist activist that was attacked by neo-Nazis in his own home and we looked at the wider implications of that. It's approximately 4.50 and we'll be nearing the end of our show very soon. Um, I'm hoping that we'll be able to play a couple of announcements I think we're having some technical difficulties here. Get your Radical Summer Attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio Tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop.
Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Hey, you mob. This virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here, and I, for one, would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag Proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Kicking off the National Weekend of Action Against AUKUS, get down to the State Library on Friday the 10th of December for International Human Rights Day, calling for human rights and not another military pact. The AUKUS pact seeks to tie Australia into a forever partnership with the US and UK involving military, education, resource extraction, technology development, manufacturing. War is the antithesis of human rights wreaking environmental destruction that not only endangers First Nations communities on the front lines, but generations of our children to come. Come and take back the streets with music, performance and speeches with MC Tom Ballard, Scott Ludlam, Liz Turner, 3CR's Jacob Grech, Combat Wombat and the Solidarity Sound System. Join us on Friday, December 10th at the State Library at 5.15pm and visit renegadeactivist.org for more information. A 3CR supporter. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. And we've come to the end of another show and it's approximately uh, 4.55 and it's goodbye from Marissa and stay tuned every Monday from 4 or 5 for the Doin' Time Show. We're going to be going out with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella, from the Rumpy Band. And stay tuned for the next show, which is Climate Action. Bye. Let's take care of each other.
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.